You're listening to Sustainably Geeky, the podcast for everyday environmentalists. Hi, and welcome to Sustainably Geeky, episode 33. Today, I am joined by Chris and Jen, our regulars. Hey, guys. I'm Jennifer, and our guest today is Nina Monteanu. Uh, She is a limnologist and a consultant um, for all things water, and she's also the author of two cli-fi books, Water is the Meaning of Water and A Diary in the Age of Water. So Nina, can you start by telling us what is a limnologist and what is it that you do? Oh, (laughs) thank you. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, everybody. Yeah, a limnologist, um, basically we're scientists who study fresh water. The word limnos is actually a Greek word for fresh water, and that's where the word comes from. It's a holistic science. Limnology uh, looks at how the aquatic world works and how everything relates, right? Limnologists, we bring together a number of scientific disciplines to study everything to do with fresh water. All its forms from vapor and rain to groundwater and surface water in rivers, lakes, ponds, and reservoirs and estuaries to its solid form as glaciers and ice. We look at where water comes from, how it forms and transforms and what happens to it. We look at more than the water itself to do this. We look at climate, geology and land use of the surrounding watershed or the catchment basin to understand how water behaves. So we bring in chemistry, physics, biology and ecology of course to look how it all interacts and evolves. So we study things like heat budgets, why and when a lake mixes or stratifies, how organisms that live in or on the water affect the water and how the water in turn affects them. And that includes water's over 70 different anomalous properties that make it life-giving. Wow. Yeah, I could, I could, I could go on with all those, but that would take up the entire show. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So you said it's exclusively freshwater, though, pretty much. It is, and that I did include estuaries, and that's always been the purview of. Uh, well, it's been an arguably a, a, how shall I say it, an interaction between the oceanographers and the limnologists, and it used to be a running joke that everybody pointed to the other one. <laughs> oh, that's their thing. So we both look at estuaries because estuaries, of course, are a mix of marine and fresh water. Cool. Well, I know we're going to learn a lot today. Um, you know, we, we talk about water a lot in different areas, but, but I'm interested in, um, you know, your perspective since you've been doing this for so long and, and you have a very um, unique uh, skill set here. So can you kind of explain the role that water plays in um, increasing or decreasing climate change? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting that you asked that because climate change is very much a water phenomenon, you know, from sea ice rise, glaciers and permafrost melting to atmospheric rivers that flow above us. The warming of the planet's atmosphere is causing water to move more quickly and disruptively through the global water cycle. So we see extreme events more frequently and in more places, things like flood, drought, fire, wind, and storms. These are all water phenomena, either too little or too much, right? And uh, with lots of attitude 
So instabilities in the, in the water cycle are increasing as it grows more out of balance. It's really a balance issue. Of course, water's unequal distribution and unruly behavior has always challenged humanity, but it's far more pronounced and unpredictable now. So I guess what role has humanity played in that then? I mean, we, we know that climate changes or global warming is, is caused by a lot of things that humans do, but how does that, how, how do we increase, I guess, the water content in the atmosphere? Well, again, that's, that's, it's not so much that we increase the water content, uh, we change where water is distributed and how it behaves. So in fact, we are increasing it just by, by creating global warming, right? Human induced global warming, which is increasing the humidity the amount that at any given time of humidity that's in the air. And I talk about this, um, I could talk about it a little bit later. Um, but human, uh, hum humanity has changed water, how water is distributed greatly with the diversions that we've created, the dams that we've produced. Um, you know, we store water more here, we divert water there. We are also changing how water uh, behaves in terms of its relationship to, to the earth and vegetation, simply by deforestation or removing vegetation some places. And that creates, that creates havoc with the way that the water cycles, where it moves, how long it stays, and all those types of things. And that's sort of what I mean by the imbalance. So we're a large part of that, that change. Yeah. Everything we do has, seems to have some kind of consequence. Yeah, yeah, part. exactly. Um, so, I am curious. Oh, go ahead, Jen. I was just going to jump in. Um, if you had to pick like maybe the top three things that we really need to change to, to improve these conditions, what, what would they be? Uh, which conditions do you mean? I mean, I, I know global warming is the cause of all of these water issues. And so we need to focus on the, you know, strategies to reduce global warming. But as far as the perspective from the water side, is there anything specific to that that we should focus on? I guess when people think about climate change, they don't normally think about, you know, how can this impact water? Um, so I guess I'm just wondering yeah. if you have a different, different advice than what we normally, you know, educate folks on as far as, you know, what we need to be doing to improve our, our situation. Well, I, I want to talk a little bit about, a little bit more about atmospheric rivers. I, I mentioned that before. And I, this is something that I think a lot of people don't think about, that there's so much water vapor. Um, for instance, at any given time, the atmosphere holds enough water in the form of vapor to cover the entire surface of the earth with one inch of rain. Wow. Just think about that. That's just, <laughs> <it's> just <laughs> wild. So water vapor is itself a greenhouse gas, right? So it provides feedback and amplifies the warming effect of other greenhouse gases. So for instance, the warming that's increased by carbon dioxide allows more water vapor to enter the atmosphere. And then it in turn, the increase in humidity amplifies the warming. So it's a positive feedback loop, which is really, you know, can spiral out of control. 
So the problem is that water vapor doesn't just play a role in warming, it also plays a role in behavior of climate through weather, right? So, such as storms and hurricanes and typhoons. And this is where atmospheric rivers come in. It's kind of a cool concept thinking of, you know, rivers above us. They're really narrow corridors of concentrated water vapor in the air. And they literally flow like an invisible river in the air. And they can either provide much needed water or they can cause flooding and devastation. A single plume can carry more water than the Mississippi River at its mouth. Wow. So a key to this is, again, like I mentioned, the way that the atmosphere provides moisture and vapor, just back to your question. And what is going on with between what's in the atmosphere and the earth is a balance between the vegetation. And most of this is via the ocean and the phytoplankton or the forests on land and their relationship to what's going on with the water vapor, right? We have the water vapor and causes rain and then the rain flows as surface water and then it comes back up and it evaporates, uh, gets taken up by the trees and the vegetation evaporates out and then continues to cycle, right? We know for a fact that trees make rain, but they also take in water. So there's this cycle, this constant cycle that's going on. So humanity has cut down so many trees. Our, our deforestation is one, if we were to look at one thing that we do is uh, to change what's been going on, that would be one of the things that I would, I would uh, focus on, is our removal of, of all the trees. I mean, we've removed something like, I believe 80% of the forests that were here not that long ago, several hundred years ago. And that's taking a toll on, on the behavior of water, where water sits, you know, there's too much one place and not enough elsewhere. So that's, it's all about balance. You know, we've, we've totally taken things off balance. Wow. Um, I, I could go on. There's, I mean, there's <laughs> other ways and that's uh, along with deforestation, there's the, uh, the fact that we mostly live in cities and we've paved over and created huge impervious sources, right? And these impervious sources create runoff because the water can't get taken in properly. So it runs like, like crazy. So it affects the local water cycle and then that affects the long-term um, larger water cycle. So urbanization essentially changes the, the hydrological cycle. So again, there it's the same thing. Um, if we were to remove the impervious sources, uh, surfaces, um, and this would include things like um, greening rooftops, creating pervious streets, parking lots, you know, right, paving stones and that sort of thing, and driveways. Um, uh, there are a couple other things that we can do, Plant, planting vegetation, planting trees, um, greening up parks, etc. then that would help the water cycle through the trees because cycle through the areas because the added vegetation allows the water to sit a little bit longer 
and come down more gently and then in, be incorporated in the soils and regenerate the aquifers because aquifers are not recharging either, right? So we're getting this flash flood on the one hand and drought conditions on the other. We're getting again, again this sort of extreme scenario and the whole climate change uh, picture is all about extremes. So this is one case where we're actually um, causing it, visibly causing on a local, uh, a local scale, the same sort of extreme scenario that climate change itself is causing with storms and, and, and uh, floods and droughts. We're doing at that on a smaller scale. So you can actually see that and then you can extrapolate that to what's going on in the planet. So we can, we can do an awful lot um, on a local scale and then we can see the compound effects outwardly. I just wanna bring in an example of something cool. Um, a fellow in China, he's a, a landscape architect at the University of Peking, Kanjin Yu. He developed a concept of treating the city like a sponge. Um, working essentially with nature to absorb and clean and use water instead of channeling it away. He calls them sponge cities. And they acknowledge the city as a living organism, dynamic and in sync with nature's rhythms. So they're creating a resilient urban setting able to adapt to various water phenomena like storms and surges, as opposed to fighting and trying to control, right? So working with it. So many cities, in fact, are starting to approach things differently and using what's called living architecture to build in a resilience to climate change. And this isn't just coastal cities, but any city, pretty much most cities are located by a lake or a river. So it's, uh, yeah, it's kind of neat. So in your experience, have you found that um, cities are receptive to this kind of adaptation and, and you know, paving less, using more um, pervious surfaces and trying to mitigate the, the flash flooding and, you know, encourage less yeah, runoff, I guess. <laughs> de definitely. I'm seeing that with a number of cities, New York City, uh, my own Toronto here. Uh, most, uh, uh, certainly uh, all the cities that are in the uh, northern, northern Europe, um, Sweden, uh, Norway, etc., um, have embraced this sort of way of thinking, but it takes time and it takes uh, a creative way to deal with existing infrastructure to change it, to adapt to, to make something, to make a city that wasn't a sponge, a sponge, for instance. Um, but the willingness is there. The, the landscape architects are out there doing really cool stuff. Um, all over the planet. And I think uh, um, we're seeing that happening in the States as well, Chicago, New York. These are cities that are um, uh, Miami. I mean, they're seeing the writing on the wall, literally, or I should say the, the salt, <laughs> the salt water on the wall. Um, and they're definitely doing something about it. Uh, the, these folks can't afford to deny climate change and they, they see the results of it and they're working with it. So it's, we are working toward it. It's just um, the barriers are probably more logistic and cost barriers 
and existing existing infrastructures that need to be adapted to to uh, the better ones. But but we are making our cities more resilient. We are certainly doing that. That's good to I hear. Really like the, yeah. um, I really like that you're linking you know green building strategies to helping reduce climate change because that's that's typically not the dialogue that occurs. You know, most of the time we're saying, hey, drive less or use, you know, renewable energy, you know, it's very focused on the energy side of things versus, you know, plant trees and use porous pavement and those types of strategies. And um, that's why I really got interested in the U.S. Green Building Council's uh, lead certification system for new construction. Um, You know, they, they definitely highlight that all of their strategies help with the overall climate change, including just using local materials, regional materials, and those types of things as well. So um, exactly. it's just refreshing to have a different perspective on it. Yeah. And it's interesting you say that because there's a part of what you say that that's linking to uh, the idea of local versus uh, versus global. And it, um, like the slow, the slow movement, for instance, which uh, suggests stressing the local resources and using those resources and not moving out and depending on things that that require transportation and and more energy to bring those resources in. And what it does is is it helps us to focus on what's here and now where we are. And and interestingly enough, they all interlink, interlink. So energy, uh, using less energy, uh, being more sustainable generally by using what, what's there and reusing as opposed to getting something new, all interlink. It's, it's, it's like ecology in action, basically, right? So, yeah. <laughs> um. You've answered a couple of my questions already in your um, explanations with other stuff. So I guess um, I, I, I'm interested to know, you talked about uh, ice or I'm sorry, water in all of its forms, including ice. So I guess let's pivot a little to talk about how the melting of like the polar ice caps uh, have impacted climate change and our planet in general. Um, and if there's anything we can do to kind of reverse that trend, because my understanding is that's, you know, a very big part of the problem yeah. is when the poles go, we're, you know, kind of <laughs> beyond the point of well, return. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, okay. For starters, global warming is, is definitely melting the polar ice caps. Um, and they're responsible, obviously, for sea, the rising sea levels and increased storm surges. Uh, due to increased and warm moisture in the air, right? So the added fresh water in the oceans could also, here's the added thing, also slow the global ocean circulation. That's the great ocean conveyor. It's called the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, or AMIC for short. And that would be catastrophic. That's some, not something that everybody is talking about. So I'd like to read a passage from my book. A Diary in the Age of Water, which essentially is takes place in the future in the uh, 2050s. And it's the diary of a limnologist. And um, 
I'm just going to go to page 175. There we go. Okay. So Amok circulates ocean water very much like in a lake with dense cold water sinking beneath warmer, less salty water. Sunken water flows south along the ocean floor toward the equator. Then warm surface water from the tropics flows north to replace the water that sank, keeping the Amok moving and preventing stagnation. As the Arctic turns into the Atlantic, dumping in more and more fresh water, the sinking is beginning to stop and the machine is slowing down. Fresh water is taking over the world. Like a giant wrench in an anarchist's hand, it's jamming the conveyor. Scientists underestimated how climate forcing would accelerate Arctic sea ice melt and increase precipitation. The Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, the Great Ocean Conveyor, is in the process of stalling. It accounts for at least a quarter of the planet's heat flux. We in the Northern Hemisphere are already seeing its effects. The rivers in Europe are drying up, forcing farmers to grow, try and grow crops in the snow. The angriest storms in history are battering our maritime coast. In the meantime, the entire Southern Hemisphere is growing steadily hotter as the Indian and Asian monsoons dry up. Imagine the dynamic sea turning into a stagnant pond. No one really knows what this all means. It's likely that the oceanic plankton, our last food source, will crash or go toxic. It will probably be both. But global warming isn't, is is also melting the permafrost in the Arctic. And this is also something that people aren't talking that much about and should be. So permafrost contains billions of tons of organic material built up over thousands of years and slowly degraded under the cold Arctic conditions. This amounts to almost half of all organic material in all soils. Permafrost is an efficient carbon sink and melting permafrost releases stored methane into the atmosphere. Methane is 20 times more efficient at trapping heat than carbon dioxide. Its release into the atmosphere will contribute that much more to global warming. So it's, uh, it's a quiet sleeper in the climate change procession. And it's, I, I consider it a ticking time bomb. In relation to what you asked, what we can do about it, both these thaw phenomena are extremely difficult to reverse once they get started. And I just heard uh, one scientist suggesting the metaphor of unplugging your freezer. Once that happens, you can't plug it back in. So another, other scientists are also saying that we're reaching tippy po tipping points with regard to these. And what happens is these tipping points also create cascades. And those cascades, once they start, you can't stop them. So I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> and I don't think the scientists do either. The only thing that I can look toward and we do look toward is how do we, uh, what can we do to mitigate these things? What can we do to adapt to them? 
because essentially it's like awakening a giant bear and that bear is awoken now. So we have to now deal with it. I don't think we can reverse it. Uh, we can certainly reverse the uh, carbon aspect of climate change. So we can reverse the warming, but the effects of, of this will continue because they're so slow and they're so big that we're still gonna be seeing the effects for quite a while. Yeah, I think in, of all the things that I've learned over the years about climate change, the, the Arctic um, ice loss is the thing that scares me the most because it's, it's, it affects everything and it's irreversible and it's just the amount of ice we're losing every day is enormous. It's, it's, yeah, it is. <laughs> it's and, overwhelming. And the, the, the permafrost, again, it's like the silent killer, the silent one, we, people aren't talking about it as much. It's also melting. And this is all happening up in the Arctic. The Arctic is seeing some major changes up there. They're, they're uh, seeing the effects of global warming much, much more than we are here. And the effects of permafrost melt are huge. Uh, one other, you know, it's not just climate change in terms of adding methane and, and warming the globe, but as the, the thaw is, as the permafrost is thawing, there's also potential, in fact, it did already happen, that um, new diseases are released. Or anthrax. Or yeah, yeah, <laughs> but even new ones possibly, ones that we haven't seen for eons and eons. Uh, microbes that that are coming back because they they go into their dormant stages, etc. And that's that's a whole area that we just you know we've kind of plugged up. Um, but you know, with what's going on right now with the current pandemic, you can imagine the possibilities. And that's um, that's terrifying. <laughs> quite quite terrifying. Yeah. And and then there's the issue of um, the land becomes squishy or less solid and people's houses are on them and they oh you know, definitely losing entire towns especially the indigenous population yeah um it's it's very sad yeah they are they are yeah i've been meaning to go up the dempster over to uh the arctic uh, my next book is actually about the arctic and um i've i've heard that it has some problems because it's literally sitting on permafrost and the permafrost melt is causing you know, the trees, they have a term for the trees that are shifting. They're called drowned trees because they're drunken trees, excuse me, not drowned trees, because they, they all shift with the permafrost. It's, um, yeah, they're dealing with a lot up there. And the, oh, and the, pink, the, the pingos are exploding too. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> so I know there's always, you know, skeptics out there still about climate change and, um, you know, making claims like over the past millions of years, the ice caps have melted before and, you know, we're still fine and all of that. So do you have any statistics or anything you'd like to share with those that might be listening uh, to help turn the page? Uh, feel free. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, <laughs> I'm not a stats person, but, but um, I, I do have some figures here. Uh, I don't know if that would turn a page per se, but it just clarifies some things and maybe brings things home. Maybe that's, that's the idea, things back home to people. 
Um, for, so for starters, uh, the global sea levels have already risen by 20 centimeters uh, since the turn of the century due to ice sheet melt, but also from expansion, just simply expansion of the warming seas, right? Which is, this is why some regions are in fact experiencing higher sea level rise because of warming, it's warming more. And so it's expanding more. It's kind of weird to, to think of that, that the ocean is higher in some places than others. But uh, projections for the next hundred years vary. And this is the thing, the climate science is, is so complex. They literally had to create chaos theory <laughs> to explain and, and, and not very well uh, climate and such. But they vary from one meter to five meters. That's about 15 feet. And in fact, that's, it's, it's even higher than that, the projections currently. So between that and increased typhoons and hurricanes and 30 foot storm surges, the tropics and the subtropics are in for a really rough ride. The satellite data indicates, this is NASA data, indicates that the rate of sea level rise is actually increasing. To me, this makes total sense because climate change is an exponential phenomenon. It's not a straight line, right? It, 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 it rises exponentially. And that's because it's based on tipping points that trigger cascades that compound on each other. So instead of one and one makes two, we get one and one makes three and et cetera, and 10 and then 100, et cetera, that sort of thing, which is, which is quite frightening. So according to the UN, more than 600 million people, here's where it gets really <laughs> sexy. Um, people live in coastal areas that are less than 30 feet above sea level. So scientists are now projecting a sea level rise of 10 to 20 feet by 2050 to the end of the century. So recent research by Climate Central project that 300 million people are now living in coastal cities that will be below the high tide line by 2050. This is mostly in Asia, where over 85% of people in the world live on land that will be regularly or permanently inundated. And that includes China, Bangladesh, Indonesia, India, uh, virtually all of South Vietnam will be underwater. I don't know if you've seen some of those, those footages, it's just, it's phenomenal. 10% of Thailand, virtually all of Bangkok, most of Shanghai, most of Mumbai, most of Basra, Iran, all underwater. In America, think of all the coastal cities that are already starting to be affected and, and will have major portions inundated by 2050. Uh, there was a recent report in Forbes that 99% of today's population in 252 coastal towns and cities will have their homes submerged by 2050 to 2100. And major hits include Texas, New York, New Jersey, Louisiana, Massachusetts, Hawaii, Florida, and California. And naturally enough, these are all highly populated states with major coastal cities. A lot of climate uh, refugees. <laughs> a lot of climate refugees, exactly. I think uh, they may, Canada may be inundated. <laughs> oh dear. We don't know what's gonna happen, right? It's, yeah. I mean, it's, that, that is definitely what's going to happen. 
is that, um, well, that is going to happen. But at the same token, like I said before, cities are preparing for these things. They, I mean, this isn't new information. This has been known for a while. It's being discussed, has been discussed for quite a while. So some, uh, every city's dealing with these things in a different way, but all are trying to be more resilient. Either they're building um, uh, concepts or, or scenarios like that sponge city that I was talking about, building in marsh areas, et cetera, to, to create buffers, building walls, impervious surfaces, or, or literally walls. Um, protecting the cities, the vulnerable parts of the cities. Um, having said that, flooding is going to occur and it's going to continue to occur. And uh, we are going to be dealing with some interesting scenarios. And that I don't know, I don't, I don't have a really good feeling of, of how we're dealing with that, uh, how every country is going to be different, right? Yeah, unfortunately, I think a lot of people are just kind of turning a blind eye to all of this. Um, you know, not my problem. It's too big yeah, of an issue for me, the individual, to try to like even comprehend. Um, they they try to rely on, well, technology will get us out of this somehow. Somebody will invent something. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Send but, in the head. <laughs> head in the sand. <laughs> sand yeah. in the head, too. Yeah. sand in the head definitely it's it's that that well, you just mentioned it's that being terrified right uh when you're when you're that scared of something you just you can't deal with it and you won't deal with it you will you will literally do nothing there are uh three states uh my psychologist friend my counselor friend talks about the three states when you're met with something and it's the three f's um fight flight and the third one is freeze. And in fact, when you think about it, a lot of animals will do just that. Prey, for instance, instead of running away, they'll freeze, hoping that they won't be noticed. And, and honestly, I think that's what a lot of us are doing with regards to this, is we're freezing. Um, let someone else do it. If I'm really quiet, no one will notice me, um, and everyone else will do whatever needs to be done. And uh, I'm immobilized. I mean, I'm frozen with fear, essentially. So one of the things that, that needs to happen and is starting to happen more and more is ways to help us unfreeze ourselves. And that's providing the individual with some, some sense of power that we can do something about it on an individual basis but also on a community, uh, with a, within a family, within a community, and then within a, a city and a country. But it starts with the individual. And this is something that Greta has done. She has started this. She was one person, one individual, who by, in some ways, funnily enough, by doing not much, sitting there, you know, but not by being where she wasn't meant to be, brought attention to herself. And she was very clear in why she was doing that. And then that literally created a movement. That's phenomenal. Phenomenal. And it's the youth that are doing that right now. So we have now major movements occurring 
everywhere for action. But to go back to the individual, I was um, uh, interviewed by the Toronto Star not too long ago. Uh, I don't know why they picked me, because probably because of my history with climate change and as a limnologist. And they had two questions for me. Um, they asked people all over Canada, various um, people all over Canada. The two questions were, at least one of them, I can't remember both of them, but one of them was, what keeps you, what keeps you awake at night about climate change? And then what's, the second question was, what, name one thing that you would want to do or you would like to be done. And my, my first answer was that, that terror, right? It came from that place of terror. And it was my fear that my son wouldn't be able to live the life that I've lived, that he would see a, a world destroyed through climate change. And that was devastating. <laughs> the, the, something that stays with me, right? Um, in terms of what I would like to see done or was at, at the individual level. And um, it comes down to empowerment, goes down, comes back to what you were saying about fear is if each person were to find something that they could do that would make a difference, even if it's a small thing, then that would allow them to make that first step out of that freeze mode, out of that you know, inertia. And having taken that first step, you can then take the next step and the next step after that. And then each step creates more and more. So it starts off with one thing that you can do. And usually it's something that you have total power to do. Plant a tree. That was my suggestion. Go plant a tree. If you have your own property, it's easy. You plant your own tree on your own property. If you don't have property, you can still plant a tree. Join a group that plants trees. There's lots of people that do that. Get involved in the community to plant trees in parks. Get involved with the school, the local schools. A lot of people in schools are planting trees. We're planting trees everywhere. And believe me, trees are one of the single most important things that we can do that can help change things in terms of climate change. Um, as I mentioned uh, on and off throughout this whole discussion, trees and, and vegetation factor in with the water in terms of helping to ameliorate, to sequester carbon for one thing, huge amounts of carbon, but as, um, also to keep the water balance going the way it does. There are all these ancillary um, effects that that operate in terms of what climate change is doing right the storms and all these kinds of things this is why so many people don't understand what's going on because climate change is a very complex phenomenon and it occurs in many ways it's not just about global warming and the fact that things are warmer because uh they aren't always warmer right and that's that's where people get mixed up but it's a complexity and it involves water, it involves all kinds of things. But just by planting a tree, that can make a different difference for you. And you're one person of many. Tell someone else why you planted a tree. 
help them plant a tree, a whole bunch of other people plant trees. Next thing you know, you've got a forest. And then from there, it goes on and on. And then you get involved in the community by doing that. So then the community can respond as a community and it has more substance as a group of people. And then that grows and grows, not unlike what happened with Greta. Greta, it started with one person and look what happened. Yeah, she's very inspirational. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 very. Um, Chris, well, did you have any questions? Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was just um, going to say, this inspires me. Go get them, guys. Yeah. Go plant those trees. <laughs> um, I think I'm um, just listening. I think um, perfection comes to mind. I think that's another component of the freeze um, thing that people do is they're afraid of screwing it up. And because there's so many climate change, global warming, everything is so multifaceted and there's so much information. Um, and the layperson doesn't necessarily understand what's being told to them and big numbers and statistics don't really no, um, mean anything to them, right? Like a million is such a huge number. It's hard to picture it. Right. So I heard this really great saying is we don't need one person doing it perfectly. We need a lot of people doing it imperfectly. <laughs> so you don't have to get yeah. it right. Like perfectly all of the time because you'll never do it. If you, like you said, just little actions one at a time. And after a while it becomes, yeah. you know, exactly. And, I mean, that that's, that's how everything works, right? Mm -hmm. Like I was just saying before, it's all incremental yeah. uh, and that's how climate works. That's how, how everything in, in the world works. It's incremental and they, they, they build on each other. So, yeah, I like that. Nicely said. Thank you, Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> well, Nina, do you want to talk a little bit about your books? I know you gave us uh, an excerpt out of one, but um, where did the inspiration come, I guess, to write these and, and what are they about? Um, thank you. Uh, I, I loved writing those two books. Um, one kind of led to the other. The first one was Water Is. It's actually nonfiction. It's a... Uh, a biography of water, essentially. Um, and it, it came from my wish as a limnologist, as, as I said before, I'm a, I'm a limnologist, been that for quite a while. I wanted to write a book that spoke to the, the subject, limnology, but was for the lay public, so that it would present water and all its iterations including all those anomalous properties I mentioned before that, that people could understand and relate to. I didn't want to write another textbook, um, but I did want to put enough in there that, of substance. And of course I didn't write early on in my career because I didn't think I was experienced enough. And then by the time I got experienced enough, I also demurred because I started to get into all this information um, about water that was possibly not, uh, how shall I put it, not traditionally scientific. It was more out there stuff. A lot of it was from, from uh, European scientists who would you know, make these supposed claims 
that let's say water has intelligence or water has memory or you know water has well let's leave it at those two. I was in frozen that was <laughs> yeah. frozen too <laughs> so so a lot of really cool stuff uh but at the time I was still a scientist practicing scientist and I uh, I was curious about all these things and a lot of them are really very cool, not explainable totally, but definitely observable. And this is the difference between the European scientists who, who spend a lot of time observing like a good naturalist, as opposed to simply creating an experiment and then testing it. So there's a different way of doing, doing the science and they were more, much more open-minded in that regard. So it took me a while, but then, I decided I just needed to incorporate all that into a proper biography of water and out came water is. So it's, it uh, talks about water from 12 different angles. It starts off with water is, and it answers the question. That's why the title water is, it answers the question. Water is magic, it starts off that way. Water is life, water is motion. And then it gets kind of weird. Water is frequency, water is um, wisdom, water is prayer, water is joy. So it goes into all these different iterations. And I brought in all the expertise uh, from all kinds of people, from indigenous folk to uh, rabbi in, in Rome to scientists all across the world to create a kind of holistic, uh, all-encompassing, um, joyful celebration of what water actually is. So it's it was that's so that's the first book. Water is <laughs> um, the second book, uh, Diary in the Age of Water, is the first of two books that are going to be coming out. This is the first one. Um, it's a novel, and it takes place in uh, near future. It starts off actually in the present. And it's, it's the diary of a limnologist. And essentially most of it is, is her entries. Um, and starts off with a quote from Wetzel, which is the limnologist's Bible. And um, on either side of it is, it's framed by the far, the far future, uh, an individual in the far future who finds this diary in fact. And she she exists in the boreal forest in the far future so essentially it's a it's a four generations of women and their unique relationship with water one of them is a scientist uh, that's the limnologist the others are not scientists so again they have different relationship and different views and it brings together the journey of humanity with water and the journey of water itself in fact, water is a character in this book, a subtle character who is, who is, which is evolving as well. So it was kind of where I brought my fiction career together with my science career and where they brought together, they collided into this book. <laughs> so it was a, it was a fun write. Um, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, it sounds really interesting. And, um, we're actually going to do a bonus show later this month to discuss your books. So um, if any of our listeners are interested in uh, learning more, um, definitely check that out. Where can they get the books 
can they order them online or? Uh, certainly. Yeah. I look forward to that show, by the way. Um, yeah, both books are available uh, at major bookstores throughout the world, uh, online as well as in brick and mortar uh, places. A Diary in the Age of Water can be purchased also through the publisher, Inanna Publications in Toronto. Uh, if you just look them up on Google, you'll find places where you can buy them. Amazon, Barnes and Noble, um, like I said, all the major bookstores in Canada, you can get it at Chapters. Uh, and uh, and and from the publishers themselves. Well, ladies, did you have any more questions for Nina before we move on? Is do you have hope? Do you have hope for our future? Is there anything that makes you think it'll be okay? Yeah, every time I run across. Uh, good stories, people who are doing things, people who are thinking things, uh, what Greta is doing as an example, people like, like Greta, they give me hope. They give me inspiration. Um, and, and truly, you know, you turn on the news, you're going to get all kinds of stuff that is going to do the opposite. So you have to look for these, and, uh, and, and I do look for them. I do look for them, and I try and report them in my, I have a couple of blogs that, uh, you know, one is focused on water. It's called themeaningofwater.com. And I write about issues and that sort of thing. Whenever I run across something like that where people are caring and moving forward and um, doing something special, and being kind and compassionate, then I see hope for humanity because that's really at, at, at the crux of it is, are we worth saving? And mm -hmm. I think we are. Um, sometimes I don't, <laughs> but, but um, honestly, with such beauty, when I hear, uh, when I hear gorgeous music, uh, beautiful, beautiful music, I mean, how can we not be worth saving, you know, and how can we not somehow pull through if we are, if we are uh, accessing such uh, sacred, gorgeous uh, sounds and, and thoughts? Yeah, that, may, that gives me hope. That does give me hope. Beautifully put. Thank you. Um, well, did you have anything else you wanted to share with us, Nina, that you haven't covered already? Um, I, you did ask me at one point for resources um, mm -hmm. for listeners who want to learn more, that sort of thing. And I do have a list if I can yeah. go through a couple of things. Um, th there's, you know, there's so many that are out there that are excellent, but I, I want to focus on some recent ones and possibly less well-known. So movies, for instance, and, and these are powerful and inspirational and instructive. So movies include Borealis. Know, these are, this is quite new. Borealis by Kevin McMahon. And Age of Nature, that's a PBS, three episodes narrated by Uma Thurman. Both excellent, excellent. Chasing Ice with photographer James Ballard. His, his, uh, oh, his uh, very <laughs> heartbreaking story. Um, yeah, amazing photography there. Uh, Living in the Future's Past, it's a movie by Susan 
Lucera or Lucera, and it's hosted by Jeff Bridges. Um, good philosophy there. And then lastly, with movies, How Whales Change Climate by Sustainable Human. And that's just a really good perspective on climate change and, and uh, talks about ecological um, um, trophic cascades, how they occur, and just the role of one, you know, one key uh, apex predator or whatever, and how it, it relates to everything else. So it gives us a good kind of holistic idea of what's going on. Two books I really want to recommend here are, these are two uh, nonfiction books, Drawdown, edited by Paul Hawken, and Climate Change and Renewable Energy by Martin J. Bush. Both are extremely well researched and provide really good practical advice. Stuff that you can, the individual or the local community can actually use and things that are tried and true. They're not just concepts, dream concepts. They're, they're things that, are, that have worked and do work. So both of them are excellent for that. Two books I highly recommend for worldview advice on how we need to and, and uh, can embrace another paradigm with nature. They're both by Robin Wall Kimmerer, Gathering Moss and Braiding Sweetgrass. I highly, highly recommend these for uh, a way to gain insight into a different way of living. I also recommend anything by Diana Bursford Kroger. She's an amazing biochemist and ecologist and speaks for the forests. And my own website on water, themeaningofwater.com, which covers a lot of the issues that we just discussed. And I want to end with some excellent works of climate fiction, whose narratives are both instructive and viscerally moving. So here's my list. The Overstory by Richard Powers. Barkskins by Annie Prue. Flight Behavior by Barbara Kingsolver. Memory of Water by Emmy Itaranta. The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Migrations by Charlotte McConaughey. And of course, my own, A Diary in the Age of Water. All of these are really well researched and based on real and projected realities and provide excellent exploration of climate change topics. So I think readers will really enjoy them and get something out of them, something meaningful. Yeah. Most of those, most of those made me cry at some point. <laughs> so that's my barometer. Well, you've given us a lot of great options and um, Chris, maybe we can get our, our book club podcast to read one of these because oh yeah we, we have another show that we've been trying to get some kind of environmental or cli-fi book on oh cool <laughs> yeah very cool very cool oh i would recommend all of them <laughs> so, yeah 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 they're all a good read yeah to awesome. read out they would read them out loud then is that how they would do it no we read them ahead of time and then discuss oh yeah. and then discuss oh okay yeah. perfect perfect well, um, with that, let's go ahead and move on to our green life hacks. Um, Nina, did you want to go first? Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, you know, I was mostly challenged by this question. <laughs> um, so I, I couldn't think of any particular green life hack. I, I, I 
I tried and I tried. So I, I, I don't know what, what to call this. It's kind of a mishmash. So it's more of a mix of several things in a kind of lifestyle choice. So it's, I know if that's a weasel way or whatever. So I'll just give you the, the kind of list because, you know, I don't do any of them totally well. But again, it's like, uh, forget who said that, uh, that quote there from Instagram. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a lot of things not so well is better than <laughs> one thing really well. So, okay. So what the, what the main thing is I eat much less meat. I still eat meat, but absolutely no beef. And we all know why. Mm -hmm. I avoid single-use plastic. I avoid malls and shopping for new things. I haven't bought anything new in like ages and it, and it feels great. I mend, I mend things, right, as a result. Um, I don't accept takeaway cups in cafes. I bring my own cup. I pick up litter, anyone's litter. And I educate people on sustainable lifestyle through a change in worldview. And that's, I do that through my blog and through other means, well, my writing and stuff. And just, just on that note, I wanna end my, my green life hack with a quote from Robin Wall Kimmerer in Gathering Moss, which I, I found totally inspirational. This is all about what I'm trying to do and, and endeavor. In indigenous ways of knowing, every being is endowed with certain gifts its own intelligence, its own spirit, its own story. Our stories tell us that the creator gave us these stories as original instructions. The foundation of education is to discover that gift within us and learn to use it well for the benefit of all. It's all about gifts and giving. That's, that's how I see it. Well, and you gave us some great green life hacks um, for, I don't know why you were worried because those were awesome. <laughs> oh, well, <laughs> I don't know. They're all kind of, you know. <laughs> no, no, that's that's exactly what we, we talk about. So thank you for sharing those oh. ideas. Those are great. Um, Chris, would you like to go next? Sure. So last year, my New Year's resolution was to read all the books in our house before I bought any new ones because as a bookworm oh. that's a very big yes. temptation is to buy yes. new books because I love books so I did that it was awesome I read a, um books that like Ray my husband bought a bunch of stuff I'm like I'm not gonna read that but it was like no let's just see what it's about and I found some really good stuff so I'm continuing that and since we've moved this book set of Lord of the Rings has been I think to two or three different houses with us so much so that the front cover of this one fell off wow. um so I've read through the Fellowship of the Rings and this one is Two Towers and I'm almost on Two Towers so I'm continuing that one is if you collect books which is an easy thing to collect um just read through them first before you buy any new ones because there are some really good ones in there you probably thought either it was a gift and you'll never read it or <laughs> your partner picked it up and it's not your taste but then you find that you actually i don't know why you're attacking me chris <laughs> <laughs> but i feel, you feel personally attacked oh trust me i'm itching there's a there's an author that i love and i know she has new stuff out and i'm just like oh i can't wait but i have to yeah. i have Wow. a lot more books to read. That's, I would say most that's of the books I buy are used. So 
<laughs> I'm getting one mailed That's to good. me from a friend of mine. She uh, put on Instagram. She had these two books. They're classics. One's um, Dorian Gray and the other one is, it's a Dickens and I can't remember, but she's mailing me the, the Dorian Gray one because she just never read them and they were gifted to her. So she's mailing it to me and I'm going to read Dorian Gray and see how much of the book movie. Swap. Perfect. Yeah. 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 Book swaps are great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. You can set up a little free library once you've read through. We stuff. have several yes. in town. We actually have one like those. the next street over. Oh, so yeah, I, I, I check. Those. Yeah, <laughs> I check every once in a while. Yeah, to see yeah, if there's yeah. some stuff in there. That's cool. a great concept. Yeah. Well, Jen, what is your green life hack? Mine is related to what's going on in the world right now with COVID, and doing my best to try to not like buy into the like I need disinfectant wipes or I need bleach or you know those like everyone's panicking Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, especially with you know those spikes that are happening right now so I looked up a recipe using essential oils and you can just use a rag that you normally use um, to wipe things down with so I initially thought of this because I bought a cork yoga mat and I didn't want to like put harsh chemicals on it to clean it every once in a while after I got all sweaty and so but now I just use it for like wiping down all surfaces so it's um about well it's in grams so if you can measure it this way but it's 75 grams of alcohol you can use any kind of alcohol um that you want just kind of like rubbing alcohol is fine and then um 25 grams of distilled water And then 30 drops of essential oils. So you can kind of uh, mix and match however you want. But in in general, I do 10 drops each of lavender, tea tree, and lemon. And it smells delicious. And it's a disinfectant. So, you know, I mean, it might not like kill the COVID virus. I don't know what it would, but um, it's got alcohol in it. Yeah. My my husband's an ICU nurse in the COVID unit right now. And he's just like, he was like 99% chance, like people are not getting COVID from touching surfaces. It's because they are in the breathing space of someone that has COVID and they're breathing in the droplets directly into their lungs. So everybody's worried about like touching stuff and, you know, um, trying to disinfect every surface. (laughs) It's like really not how people are contracting COVID. So, but anyways, that is well, what I am doing uh, to try to at least attempt to make myself feel better to clean things. <laughs> That's excellent. I, I, I've been looking into essential oils myself for other reasons, uh, was to get rid of fleas oh. in the house. And essential oils themselves play a role in getting rid of them. So they, they have some awesome properties, I think, that we don't even realize. Lavender is really a good one. Yeah. I made a well that's cool. A solution, her mixture to clean my yoga mats with out of like witch hazel and essential oils. So yeah. yeah. How do you like your cork yoga mat? I've been looking at maybe getting one of those because mine are getting torn up. So I do hot yoga, so it gets kind of slippery. <laughs> Uh, like it's, I don't do it's very like compared to like a normal yoga mat that kind of has like those little cushion grooves a little bit where you can get grip. Yeah. yeah. The, the cork one is not like that. It's, I mean, the one that I got is like slick, slick, slick. So you just so, like fall forward. <laughs> so, I mean, I had to like really like suction my hands. <laughs> I was getting a good hand workout. 
But um, I did have to end up buying like one of those towels that I put down like halfway through the class once I just am like beyond the point of being able to hold myself up properly. Um, but I do like it because um, it, it's much like spongier. It has more cushion than like your normal yoga mat. Um, it feels like thicker, but in the right way. So I'm happy with it. <laughs> I would worry it would break because you know, you bend it so many times, but the rolling, I mean, the rolling of it, it, it hasn't, I've had it for years. So, so okay. far so good. Interesting. All right. We went off a little tangent there, but that was fun. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my green life hack is pretty simple and I don't know, I hope I haven't done this one already, but since we were talking about water today, um, mine is just collecting your rainwater and also for me, my AC water, um, I have a pipe that comes out and I just put, you know, drain it into a bucket or a watering can. And I use that to water my indoor plants. So um, right now I have several giant buckets sitting, you know, where the, the water comes off the house because I don't have gutters. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have yeah. one of those fancy rainwater collectors. I would love that. But, you know, that's money and time that I don't have right now. So. <laughs> So yeah, just, re, you know, saving water um, that way, you know, you're saving water from the tap and you're reusing. Definitely. Comes from yeah. the sky. That works. That <laughs> works. Yeah. Well, thank you ladies um, for being on. Uh, Nina, do you want to tell us how folks can find you online and any other last minute promotion you want to do? Sure. Um, well, I mentioned one of my sites, Nina Montiano. Dot com. Actually, I didn't mention that one, but I'm mentioning it now. <laughs> that's my writing site. Uh, then there's ninamontiano.me. That's my coaching. I coach uh, writers to publication. TheMeaningOfWater.com is my site devoted to, to all things to do with water. And then I'm on Facebook uh, and Twitter. I'm the alien next door, I think. <laughs> that's, that's me. That's me. I'm the alien next door and on LinkedIn. So you can just find me by looking up my name. Great. Yeah. Well, Chris, where can we find you online? You can find me here on Sustainably Geeky and our other shows, Epically Geeky, Marginally Geeky, and Creatively Geeky, <laughs> which I think is awesome. Um, and on Instagram at Rosen Hummingbird. And you're making your own stuff and selling it now, right? I am. Rosen Hummingbird is my little shop. I have an Etsy shop where I just started knitting and crocheting um, some stuff. Because Super cute blankets and... Blankets and what do you scarves. Call them? You the, call little, else. the headbands. I have toques, which are toques. Yeah. beanies for the American <laughs> audience. Or winter hats. Um, and then I'm going to... I'm making a blanket... I like making blankets. So it's a way to mental health thing. And I can only have so many blankets in the house. So I just sell them. <laughs> but yeah. And it's fun. Yeah. Well, and I will be taking commissions soon. Check out her store. Yeah. You're you. on Etsy, you said, right? I am on Etsy. Yeah. Rose and Hummingbird. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, Jen, where can we find you online? <laughs> you can find me here at Sustainably Geeky. <laughs> Exclusive access. <laughs> okay. 
And you can find me here on all the shows that Chris mentioned, um, Epically Geeky, Marginally Geeky, and Creatively Geeky, um, as well as on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Het's Gonna Be Me. And you can find the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well at Sustainably Geeky. Thank you for listening and have a great rest of your day. This has been a presentation of the Epically Geeky Network. 